Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for coming today. This is the Cato Institute's briefing on E-Verify. Uh, my name is Alex Narasta, and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to introduce and moderate this panel about E-Verify. Now, just to begin, I'm going to give you some background on the immigration debate, where E-Verify fits into this debate, some common perceptions of E-Verify, and then I'm going to introduce our panelists who are going to tell you uh, generally some of the big problems with E-Verify. First, uh, some basics. Broadly, E-Verify is an internet-based system that compares information from an employee's form I-9 data uh, with information from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Social Security Administration in order to confirm employment eligibility. The designers and supporters of the system want this program to be used by every employer in the United States to run every new hire's identity information against government data to verify work authorization. And the intent of all this is to try to exclude uh, illegal or, or unauthorized immigrants and workers from employment in the United States. Now, the pilot programs that became E-Verify were created in 1996. Uh, at the point when uh, these pilot programs, essentially the ones that became E-Verify, was to provide a cheap, the point is to provide a cheap, effective, and non-intrusive way to verify that job applicants are lawfully allowed to work in the United States. Now, as our speakers will point out and go into some detail about, E-Verify is neither cheap, it's not effective, it is very intrusive, and will probably lead to some sort of national identification card or other kind of scheme. But uh, how does E-Verify fit into the immigration reform debate that we're currently seeing? Uh, very broadly, there are three pillars of any immigration reform likely to be contemplated by Congress. The first pillar is a legalization of some of the unauthorized immigrants here currently. The second is an increase in lawful immigration and guest worker visas going forward, or a reform of the legal system. And the third is an increase in immigration enforcement. E-Verify is likely to be the cornerstone of immigration enforcement in any new reform, something that we think would be a big mistake. Years after the immigration reform of 1986, known as the Reagan amnesty, uh, illegal and unauthorized immigration did increase. Now, many supporters of E-Verify claim that Reagan amnesty didn't push immigration enforcement as much as it should, and that's why it failed. Of course, uh, we think it failed for other reasons, but there is a persistent myth out there that E-Verify would have prevented a resurgence of unauthorized immigration that occurred in the wake of the 1986 amnesty. Now, to see the effects of E-Verify, we can look to states that have adopted it uh, as mandatory, states like Arizona, and examine how it incentivizes unauthorized immigrants to commit identity theft in pursuit of employment, how few businesses actually use E-Verify when they are mandated to do so, how E-Verify creates a larger employment black market than existed previously, how expensive the system is, how only a minority of workers are actually run through it. All in all, E-Verify is a poor scheme for identification and workplace immigration enforcement and will seriously impair the privacy of Americans and will substantially negative, negatively affect businesses in the economy. Now, enough of that. Let me introduce our panelists. Uh, to my immediate left and your right is Jim Harper. He is the Cato Institute's Director of Information Policy Studies. Harper is the author of the book Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. And Cato's policy analysis, which I'm sure you've all picked up, that's titled uh, Electronic Employment Eligibility Verification, Franz Kafka's Solution to Illegal Immigration. To my right is Christopher Calabrese. He is the Legislative Counsel for Privacy-Related Issues in the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office. 
Prior to joining the WLO, Calabrese served as project counsel to the ACLU Technology and Liberty Project. As legislative counsel, Calabrese led, leads the office's advocacy efforts related to privacy and the responsible use of technology, developing proactive strategies on pending federal legislation and executive branch actions concerning data collection, surveillance, and identification systems. On my extreme left, your extreme right, uh, David Beer. He is a policy analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, his opinion articles have appeared in various online and print publications, including Forbes, Sacramento Bee, Miami Herald, Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, and numerous others. So. Thank you, Alex, thank, and thanks to all of you for being here today. Uh, certainly appreciate your interest in this issue, and, which is uh, capturing a lot of people's attention now, and that's nice. Before we get too far along in the immigration debate, we should talk about uh, what we're really getting into with E-Verify. I'll, I'll say at the start that I, I guess because I'm an optimist, an eternal optimist, you have to be, I was amused yesterday to watch the, the hearing in the Judiciary Committee where uh, Republicans who nominally stand for limited government, uh, reduced regulation, and so on and so forth, uh, many of them clamored for increasing the regulation that, that is put upon employers, uh, even increasing penalties that are put on employers. I came to Washington as a Republican revolutionary in 1995. I actually worked on the Judiciary Committee, and uh, I've seen some of the, some of the principles that, uh, that we fought for then uh, start to go to the side. Uh, I work on principle at the Cato Institute, uh, trying always to get our government policies to consist with uh, liberty, free markets, peace, the basic constitutional values that our country was founded on. And I think that E-Verify is well outside of those values. So my specialty is, is uh, identification and my concern with national identification systems, and I think they should be a concern of yours too, because a great part of living in a free country uh, is, having, is having freedom to identify yourself as you will. It's a little arcane, and sometimes it may seem a little bit silly, but it's rather central to, to your ownership of yourself, that you identify yourself as you wish, when you wish, and that we don't impose artificial or unnecessary identification requirements on people in order to access the good services and benefits of living in the United States. So let me talk a little bit about what a national identification card or system is. Um, there's really a sort of a, just a simple three-part definition. Uh, one is that it is national. I think uh, in E-Verify we're definitely talking about a national system. There are many identification systems that are not, such as state driver's licenses or, or uh, uh, business identification cards and many other things. It's for identification. Identification is, actu is actually a little bit complex. It's the comparison of identifiers that have been collected before to the identifiers presented by an individual. It's sort of a technical, a technical way of understanding, are you seeing, do you have enough confidence that you're seeing on a second, third, or fourth time the person who you originally saw before? So an identification system is about comparing identifiers to the person presenting him or herself. The social security number is an identifier. It's not an identification system. So the correlation between name and number, that's a national identifier. Uh, but don't say we've already got a national identification system just because we have national correlation between a name and a number. Uh, that's just one constituent of a national identification system. It's not necessarily good to even have a national identifier like that, but it's a cost of having the social security system. Uh, when, the, when the social security system was founded, as many of us know, uh, the creation of this number was intended solely for the use of the social security system. But quite rapidly after the, after the numbering system began, it was applied to other uses, and especially in the late 60s and early 70s with computerization, 
the, the social security number became sort of the universal number for identification people of in, in information systems. And so you saw it in credit reporting, you see it in healthcare, you see it in uh, lots of different places now. Uh, that's a nice illustration of how even an identifier, just one part of an identity system, will transmogrify over time and expand to the other uses that it can be put to. Think about E-Verify. Now the final element of a national ID is that it's practically or legally required. There are pl plenty of identification systems we use. A, a credit card is often, would often be good enough for identification, but, but plenty of others that are optional, purely optional. You don't have to have it to, to navigate the society. So I could, uh, I could uh, live entirely well without a, a credit card, giving up some con conveniences, obviously, but I could surely be able to, uh, to live uh, uh, practically, and it would be legal for me not to, not to carry it. Uh, E-Verify, I think, falls well within the, in the definition of a practically or legally required, uh, assuming compliance with the law, which is not necessarily a given. Uh, you have to participate in the E-Verify program. You have to be identified to the government in order to get work in the United States. So I think, I think we're talking about a national identification system. But let me take you through how E-Verify requires a national ID system, because I don't think it's obvious uh, from just hearing about it. A lot of folks haven't thought this all the way through. Uh, and just sort of assume that we'll get, to, get an E-Verify system that works without a national ID. Well, the, the immigration law makes it a question of federal law whether a person is entitled to work in the United States. I think that's a bad policy for, as, as a matter of first principles, to give the federal government the right to say whether or not a person can work. But that's what current immigration law says. If you want to administer that kind of program, there are really two questions that, that, that have to be administered. One is, who is presenting themselves for work? And then two is, what are they entitled to? What are the set of entitlements? And do, do those entitlements include uh, the ability to work in the United States? Lots of the problems that we'll, we'll hear about uh, from my co-panelists deal with that second question. It's the comparison of the names and numbers. Are these accurate? Are people, are employers telling uh, potential employees when things go wrong, et cetera, et cetera? But the question of who is it is where you need the national ID system. As most of you probably know, right now E-Verify just compares a name with a social security number. It's a basic check. It sounds pretty simple. It isn't necessarily simple at scale. But the important thing is that it's actually not good enough. We all know about the identity fraud problems that have already plagued uh, the E-Verify system. <clears throat> and as the E-Verify system grows, should it grow, those identity fraud problems would grow. If you make it valuable to defeat an identity system, more people are going to defeat that identity system. Uh, it's sort of natural logic. So you've seen a growth in identity fraud already, and you'll see more growth in identity fraud. That's why the proposals uh, going around today on Capitol Hill talk about strengthening uh, the, the identification system. They talk about a fraud-proof or biometric card. That's helpful at least because it makes clear what we're talking about which are biometric cards, a biometric identity system for, for uh, uh, administration of E-Verify. And the Washington Post, uh, though I disagreed with it, was kind enough to editorialize a few weeks ago, hey, what the heck, let's just have a national ID. Let's get over it, shall we? Well, I'm not getting over it, and I don't think you should either. We already see that strengthening is happening, strengthening in the E-Verify system. E-Verify uses a thing called a, that it calls the photo matching tool where the federal government has brought in pictures from Administration of Immigration, and it's, it offers employers the opportunity to take a look at the picture, a, a, a weak form of biometric, of people who are naturalized citizens because they have those pictures. 
the, the Department of Homeland Security has entered into agreements or started to agree with de departments of motor vehicles around the country to share DMV data. Right now they're only talking about the, some of the numbers, the identifying numbers that appear on your driver's licenses and ID cards. But I think that that's the path along which driver's license photos will travel. Uh, under the Real ID Act, as a matter of fact, driver's license photos are supposed to be uh, high-quality digital photos that could be used for, for uh, facial recognition. And in some states, including Delaware, they're already using facial neck recognition as you apply for your license. They take your photo and run a facial recognition check against, against their data while you're, while you're applying for your driver's license. So the pieces are being put together to, to make E-Verify that national ID system. It's another step in building the national ID system. And I think it's worth looking at the history of this, of this policy to understand that we're at an important threshold uh, toward that national ID system. It was in 1986 that the Immigration Reform and Control Act first created that policy that I disagree with of requiring employers to check employees' bona fides, that is, their right to, to be in the country and to work. It was a simple process of collecting some information on an I-9 form and keeping it in a file. Relatively low uh, burden, but it was the beginning of this process. In 1996, that, that, that law not having really stemmed the flow of illegal immigration, uh, Congress amended the law again, and this time created basic pilot. Basic pilot was the original name of the, this program to compare I-9 information to the actual data uh, as it resides in federal databases. For symmetry's sake, I'll say it was about 10 years later in 2006, I don't, know, don't recall if it was 2005 or 2007, that the Bush administration renamed Basic Pilot to E-Verify and started really, really pushing for its use among government contractors, among, uh, among many, many parties. Those are the kind of steps, in decennial di steps, toward, toward a national IT system. And the question really is put to you whether you'll help take the next step toward a, toward a national ID in the United States. In case you are indifferent about whether we have a national ID, in case you're not listening to the American people who I, th who I think don't want one, um, there are important reasons not to have a national ID in the United States. Uh, think of it as a way of, of transferring power from individuals to governments and corporations. Uh, with the national ID system, it'll be a lot easier to be asked a lot of different places to show your ID. Uh, undoubtedly, it would be machine readable in some respect, and so a national uh, infrastructure for identity reading and identity capture would mean that when you cashed a check, when you used a credit card, when you entered a hotel, when you entered an office building, uh, when you flew, Someone would say, let me get that, let me get your card, let me swipe it. And they'd gather data about where you were, what you were doing, who you're with. It's easy to correlate this data, obviously. And lots more. Now, we're hurtling toward a, a surveillance society already. We don't need to speed it up by creating an identity system that, that could be used nationally to gather information about us. But more importantly is that it, it's that it's a transfer of, of power to control us uh, in lots of ways that have already been proposed. In E-Verify, we're talking about the federal government controlling whether or not a person can work in the United States. I think the framers would be spinning in their graves to hear that the federal government would decide, yes or no, whether a person who's willing and able can work in the United States. Watch for that system to expand to access to financial services, access to travel, access to health care, access to housing. The list goes on and on. Prescriptions, that's been, that, that's been literally proposed to use national identity for controlling access to prescriptions, uh, to guns and ammunition. We are, we're talking now on Capitol Hill about whether uh, guns should be registered in gun owners. Now, historically, national identification systems have been used in some of the worst atrocities. 
Now, I don't see that happening in the United States anywhere in the near future. But, the, but history is long, and uh, I think it's uh, Bruce Schneier put it very well when he said that it's an important form of civic hygiene not to create systems that could be used in totalitarianism. So while we're mocked by our European friends who have national IDs and nothing ever really happened bad to them, we just think a little bit about history. And we think about a future that is uncertain, no matter how great the blessings of our liberty are today. So as you examine this issue of E-Verify, if you see that the political path of least resistance is to go ahead and advise your boss that a, that a yay vote is okay, uh, I think you should stop for a moment and you should think about principle. You should decide whether you want to be part of taking the next step toward a national ID in the formerly free United States. Thank you. Well, I'd also like to thank you for coming and taking your lunch hour and talking about what some people consider the least exciting topic in immigration reform. So thank you for that. Um, we don't think that, but you know, we're, we're not that cool. Um, I am going to talk more about the collateral harms of E-Verify that aren't sort of central to, to the national ID space. But I, I do want to just start by saying that we agree with everything Jim said about the concerns over a national ID system, as, as I describe it, as a, it's essentially a tool for social control, where you can use, you know, the more that you have this card, the more you can require it for things, and the more restrictions you can place on individuals based on essentially having a record in the system, right? I mean, you can already see how this works now with a no-fly list, right? There are already U.S. citizens who are not allowed to engage in a fundamental right, which is to say to fly, because they're on a government list. They can't contest that determination. They can't get themselves off the list. The ACLU has a, a dozen or more clients who are currently attempting to contest their placement on the no-fly list, and that lawsuit has been going on literally for years. So it is not a crazy idea to imagine that the government might make a de determination about a group of people that they don't like and you know, place them on a particular list. And then if you have a national ID card, you essentially enable control over, or limitations on those groups of people. I just use that as an example. Um, one of the most troubling, wrong piece of paper, most troubling things about E-Verify, in addition to the national ID, is the effect that it will have on workers. As Jim said, everyone has to be in the national ID system, in the E-Verify system. And not only does everyone have to be in the system, everyone's information has to be correct in the system. Now just, just sort of think about that for a second. We are relying on the federal government to have 100% accuracy in its information or else somebody doesn't get to work. If your name doesn't match up with what's in the E-Verify system, you cannot start your new job until that error is fixed. A 99% effective system, so a 1% error, that's a pretty good, right? 1% of the 154 million workers in the United States is 1.5 million people. So, you know, we've heard a variety of numbers. I think it's very hard for technical reasons, which maybe we can get into in the Q&A, to actually get a precise error rate. Um, 
the reason it's so difficult is because if you don't match in the system, there's two possibilities. One is that they've got your information wrong. The other is that you're actually not, uh, not documented and you, know, you shouldn't be able to work. So it, it, but it can be hard to sort of parse out those two things, like which category you fit in. But you know, the error rates have gone down in recent years, and that's, they're to be lauded, the DHS is to be lauded for that. But you know, we've used a lot of the tricks that we can use to bring the error rates down, and you know, I think we're still gonna have a stubborn and persistent error problem. Well, I think it's actually useful to kind of put a face on that problem. So I'm gonna put a face on it, and I'm gonna call her Jessica. And this is, so this is the story of a particular U.S. worker. Her name is Jessica St. Pierre. She was a U.S. citizen, and in 2010, she decided she got a new job working in the telecom industry. Um, so Jessica went to start her new job and was essentially fired on the, fir the first day on the job because there was an error in the E-Verify system. So she, she came in, she had all her supporting documents, you know, they, they typed them into the system, said you're not work, you know, didn't get a match, said you're not work authorized, and she was let go. So she went home in shock, crying. She went to her father, her father said, don't worry, we're gonna go to Social Security tomorrow, we'll get this sorted out, you know, you'll be back, you'll, it'll be fixed in no time. Um, so she went to Social Security, they said, there's no problem. There's, you know, your records are correct. Your information is okay. Um, then call the employer up. The employer said, well, that's not what our records say. Sorry, you're out of luck. Uh, she, called the DH, she called the DHS hotline. They said, no, no, your records are correct. Meanwhile, by the way, they won't give you a piece of paper that says, oh, no, she's right in the system. Employer, you should let her work, right? So she called the hotline. She called the EEOC. At one point, they thought she had been the victim of identity theft, so she tried to fix that for a while. This literally went on for months. So finally, what, what had ended up happening is she said, you know, enough of this. I, I just, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, she took another job, lower paying, in a different company, but just basically so she wouldn't have to deal with E-Verify. So this was after months of unemployment. Ultimately, what ended up happening in that case and what they determined, as I remember, I said her name was Jessica St. Pierre. Apparently, when they were, the employer was entering her name in the system, they were putting two spaces between St. Pierre, and so she wasn't clearing. That was it. And so, and, and it was that kind of error that led her to be out of work for two months. I mean, that's what happens when you put essentially the federal government between the employer and the employee. Jessica is one example. Um, there, I think, will be hundreds of thousands of others if the system becomes mandatory. You know, appeals can fix some of this problem. In other words, I can, I can appeal my determination to DHS, appeal it to a, uh, an administrative law judge, maybe ultimately appeal it to the federal court. That's, all of this has been proposed, though these processes don't necessarily exist now. But a, a survey of 176 immigrant workers in Arizona found that of those workers who did not clear E-Verify, 33% were fired immediately after without an opportunity to, do a, to get a tentative non-confirmation and contest their determination. Many of them were not actually notified that they even had the right to contest. I mean, under the law now and the, under the agreement that employers sign, they're supposed to notify workers, they're supposed to keep them on, they're supposed to allow them to do this kind of, you know, you know allow them to contest the process. Of course, 
from a practical point of view, if I'm an employer and I've got an employee who I don't know if they're going to be able to work, I don't know what their situation is, put yourself in the sort of the seat, the shoes of a small business owner. I'm going to train that person. I'm going to have them on the job for a couple of months. I'm going to, you know, devote time and energy to doing that when ultimately I don't know if, the, and if that's just going to be wasted time and I have to start over. There's a lot of real world pressure on employers to not go down that route and instead to just sort of, you know what, you just didn't clear the system. Or even start to screen people before, before they're actually starting the job, which is also something you're not supposed to do in order to make sure that you don't have that problem. Um, you know, we think and we've seen and actually not just we've seen, the GAO has reported that this problem is, is particularly pernicious amongst women who change their names, um, amongst individuals who have, you know, sort of non-Western spellings of their name. They may invert their, their, their first name and their last name according to sort of how we do it. Um, and that results in database errors. Um, the GAO predicted that if E-Verify were made mandatory for new hires nationwide, approximately 164,000 citizens per year would receive tentative non-confirmations just from name, cha name change related issues. And, and sort of buried in this problem, in addition to the real and obvious problem of, of errors, is, the, is a discrimination problem. I mean, what, and that's, you know, an employer starts to look at somebody, look at somebody's name, look at somebody's race and say, I don't know if I'm going to take a chance on this guy. Just not, I mean, they look great, but you know what? I've had problems with E-Verify before. It's just save the hassle. I'm going to go with John Smith over here because John seems like he's got a name that's going to be, be okay and clear the, clear the system. Um, in the, and of course, I mean, that's really sort of, well, not as clearly a, a bad outcome. I mean, it's not so much an intentional discrimination as it is an employer sort of shying away from a bad outcome. But there's also potential for intentional discrimination. You can, you know, we talked about the expansion of E-Verify or the expansion of a national ID system. You know, if we build a national ID system that while being a, you know, being work authorized is not the same thing as being el eligible and legal to be in the United States, there, there's a great deal of overlap between those two categories, but they're not totally the same. But there's going to be a lot of temptation to use the E-Verify system as a proxy for lawful presence and use it in all the other contexts where we say, boy, we don't, you know, we don't think that you're lawful and we think that you should you know, be run through E-Verify. And that can be everything from clearing voter rolls to keeping people out of the healthcare exchanges. Um, you, know, you can see the, the sort of path forward for expanding E-Verify. Um, you know, well, Sorry, I'm debating which one of these points to make first. Um, let me just say, while talking about the, the national ID system, I'm not sure that a, a card is even necessary now. We've talked about a national ID card for a long time, but we are in an era of ready access to internet, right? Almost everybody in this room, I suspect, is carrying an internet-connected device with them, their smartphone. They've likely got a lot of tools to make that smartphone do lots of things. So just imagine in 10 years, say the E-Verify system has been completely rolled out. It's got everyone's photo in it. The New York City Police Department, just to pick on them, I could pick on lots of police departments, have a practice that the ACLU really doesn't like. It's called stop and frisk, where we stop lots of people on the street and frisk them to see if they have a weapon. Well, imagine if every 
LA, every NYPD officer is also equipped with the E-Verify app. And when they stop you, hit E-Verify and say, you know, I want to know if you're lawful. So you're going to have to give me your, your name and identifying information. If you don't pop up in the system, if you're not right in E-Verify, I'm going to have to take you in and, and, you know, maybe do run a secure community's fingerprint check on you. So you can sort of see the expansion of the E-Verify system even without a card. You could certainly see this happening in you know, places that have attempted to impose Arizona-style uh, you know, laws like uh, 10, SB 1070. Um, so you know, I think we, we see it, this is really ripe for expansion if it passes. Uh, a final point is about identity theft. Um, obviously, E-Verify is a, a massive treasure trove, potentially for identity thieves. I mean, it's literally the personal information on every American. Um, we have seen some examples. In 2009, Arizona officials learned that one of the contractors they used for E-Verify had left their systems exposed, and they had a data breach that exposed 37,000 individuals' personal information. So we've already seen some identity theft problems. I think there's a potential for a great deal more as all this personal information flies around. Ultimately, the ACLU believes that we're just not, it's just not a good deal for American workers to do E-Verify. I mean, this is something that affects every single one of us. It has the potential to make us, you know, to, to cede yet another element of our liberty to the government, and it's not clear that we're getting a good exchange for a dollar. And I think David's gonna talk a little bit about why that's the case. Thank you. Hello, I'm David Beer. As Alex said, I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. CEI is a regulatory policy think tank that focuses on how government regulations affect private industry. E-Verify has received support from many business associations, including the Chamber of Commerce. But others, like the National Small Business Association, have opposed E-Verify mandates under any conditions. The difference might be that the Chamber represents many more large corporations that have the Human Resource Department capabilities to handle E-Verify compliance issues relatively easily. A 2011 Bloomberg government report reinforces this perspective. It found that 99% of E-Verify compliance costs will be imposed on small businesses to put these costs in context, although E-Verify seems simple, consider the fact that it comes with an 88-page manual on compliance containing dozens of requirements which, if violated by employers, will cost them thousands of dollars in penalties. Compliance rates have remained low even in states where it is mandatory for all employers to use the system. Even the Social Security Administration, who administers the program, missed 1,800 E-Verify checks on its own employees in 2008 and 2009. If this system is, as its proponents contend, so easy and so convenient, why, even when it is mandated, are employers choosing not to use it? 
Much of the support that we do see among the business community for E-Verify comes from the fact that they see it as a safe harbor from the threats of government penalties associated with the I-9 form. Currently, employers who never hire unauthorized immigrants can still be penalized hundreds of thousands of dollars if they uh, violate the paperwork portions of the I-9 form. Misplaced names, dates, addresses, and other information can cost them thousands of dollars. In 2010, for example, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, fined Abercrombie & Fitch over $1 million for what they called technology-related deficiencies in the I-9 filing process. Overall, the Obama administration has increased fines on employers to well over $20 million a year and ramped up criminal sanctions on those who hire unauthorized immigrants. Prison sentences that include ones for, the, for such individuals as managers or human resource staffers who fail to notify an employer of a problem employee or a suspect document. Now the Obama administration wants 10-year prison sentences for E-Verify violators and wants to increase penalties on employers 25-fold. Reading ICE's press releases is slightly dystopian. Um, you can find them all online. Uh, the, the base of its targets are people like a private school president, a daycare operator, a local restaurateur, an organic farmer, a neighborhood caterer, and dozens of others. At the same time, ICE has rapidly increased the number of I-9 audits on employers, which is very expensive for employers to comply with. ICE will audit employer records, which forces them to hire immigration counsel to make sure that they have gathered the appropriate documents in the appropriate order, or they will face fines. The never-ending three-year to four-year audit of Chipotle, for example, has already cost them over a million dollars in attorney fees alone, not to mention the staff time it took to gather, catalog, and ship 300,000 employment-related documents. It's, it is totally understandable to me why businesses want a safe harbor from these threats. But E-Verify is not it. It doesn't remove paperwork for employers. Nor does E-Verify use or even failure to hire unauthorized immigrants automatically mean you will not be subject to penalties. For example, a South Carolina restaurant recently was fined $250,000 for requiring different uh, identification from legal immigrants than from natural born citizens. This is discrimination, um, according to ICE at least. And while, you know, we should have the same standards for everyone, this shows the types of problems that are inevitable with these types of systems. How a well-meaning staffer who does not want to make an illegal hire can cost businesses thousands of dollars, even if the business is using E-Verify already. Workers often fool employers with identity theft. So even under E-Verify, employers are not guaranteed a legal workforce. 
In fact, the largest workplace raid in the nation's history, which captured over 1,300 workers, was against an E-Verify user. He was cleared of all wrongdoing, but only after millions of dollars in attorney fees and much more to recruit, hire, and train all new workers for his farm. Moreover, because employers have to pay any employee who challenges a tentative non-confirmation, the initial notification that you're not in the system, they have to pay that worker regardless of whether he's ultimately proved to be unauthorized, which means we are forcing employers to pay unauthorized workers during that period of time. It is easy to see how in industries that rely heavily on short-term employment, this could end up being a huge problem. Consider a contractor, for example, who needs workers for a three-week job. He hires 10 workers, five of them receive tentative non-confirmations. They all appeal. Two weeks later, if we're optimistic, many appeals take three months or more. Um, so two weeks later, they're rejected. They disappear suddenly, and the employer is left without workers to complete the job, even though he paid them for that, for that two-week period. Beyond the costs, risk of penalties, and being forced to pay unauthorized workers. There are three other cri very critical reasons to oppose E-Verify. First, businesses should not want to go down this road to electronic regulation, where employers are monitoring em employer compliance remotely using computer checks. This road does not end well for employers. Immigration law is just the beginning. As technology advances and government databases become more complete, all manner of labor law and regulatory uh, controls could be enforced in this manner. Remote control regulation is a dangerous precedent for businesses who want to reduce their regulatory burden, not increase it further. Second, universal regulations like E-Verify inevitably result in selective enforcement which undermines the rule of law. In Arizona, for example, so many businesses failed to comply with E-Verify that the state had to selectively choose who to target. But it's not just the violators who will be singled out either. As I mentioned earlier with the audits, the government will have to selectively audit individuals across the entire country. Like Chipotle, many businesses will be targeted as an attempt to make examples out of them, costing them thousands of dollars in the process. This unfair or random enforcement will undermine the rule of law and create a regulatory uncertainty that I think all businesses should oppose. Finally, businesses should resist at any opportunity being treated as the fourth branch of government. Immigration enforcement is good. However, it is the job of the federal government, not businesses. If the government wants to enact a certain uh, social scheme, whether immigration restrictions or something else, it should do it. It should not conscript employers to do it for them. 
the imposition of remote control regulation, selective enforcement, and employer conscription radically increases the power of, go of government over the private sector. If it can control employers remotely, if it can conscript them to enforce any of its social policies, if it can selectively enforce the law against those it wishes, limited government is little more than illusion. Something that exists on paper, but in reality, in reality only exists or is only limited by the political whims of bureaucrats and the majority in Congress. I think there is a better way. I think that way involves encouraging people to enter the country legally by allowing legal entry. And I think that the government should cease imposing the cost of immigration enforcement on American citizens and American employers. Thank you.